I believe it would not have even been an epidemic if glyphosate were not on this planet. That's my, that's my very strong controversial claim. If we didn't have glyphosate, we would not have this epidemic. And we're going to see, I think, that the countries that have, number one, the most glyphosate, and number two, the most biofuels, those are going to be the countries that are hit the hardest. We're going to see a pattern like that. I'm seeing a pattern like that. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. You are dialed in to Holistic Health Masterclass podcast. Uh, my name is Brett Hawes and uh, we are back with our final episode for season three. For those of you who are longtime followers, listeners to the show, subscribers, um, you probably noticed that uh, our release of podcasts has literally come to a grinding halt and that is for good reason. Uh, we welcomed our third child to the family so our little girl june uh, arrived three and a half weeks early and so we are delighted with that uh, everyone is happy healthy and so on but i've really just um dropped work and dropped everything else um so that i can enjoy the new addition to the family and also the last stretch of summer uh, before we kick things in to a very very busy fall season coming up uh, don't really have a ton of announcements here. I do want to say that uh, if you are a practitioner that is listening to this, um, we have now officially partnered with the Institute of Holistic Nutrition for my Digestive Health Practitioner Masterclass. Um, so keep an eye out on your inbox. Uh, if you're not subscribed to our email list, please do so. Just go to the website and uh, you'll see a couple of places to opt into the mailing list. And of course, if you are um, part of IHN alumni, you will be getting some emails uh, through them as well. And I think we'll be looking to start that program uh, mid to late September sometime. Okay, so I think everyone is just kind of uh, enjoying the last days here of our summer before we all get back to it. Um, um, other than that, uh, you know, I, I don't really have too much more um, to say. Uh, I think I'm going to do a separate podcast with a bit of a, a COVID um, pandemic update. Um, I really have a lot to say on that. Um, I will be releasing maybe just off the cuff. I did an hour long um, live session with Dr. James Lyons-Weiler about hydroxychloroquine and the sort of smear campaign uh, there. So that was interesting. I might just uh, release that on its own uh, and, and hopefully you'll enjoy that. But um, other than that, uh, the podcast is, you know, we'll probably pick it up um, in the next month or so and uh, get back at that. And uh, yeah, so my guest today, um, I am sure many of you are familiar with her is Dr. Stephanie Seneff. Uh, Dr. Stephanie Seneff is a an MIT researcher. Um, she has multiple degrees. Uh, one of her big um, sort of gifts, if you will, among many of them is the ability to sift through and sort uh, large amounts of data. And of course, many of you might be familiar with her work in the realm of glyphosate and autism. Okay. So, um, our conversation today really talks about glyphosate and its connection to COVID-19. And, uh, you know, after reading some of her work on this, uh, some of the parallels, um, the correlations that she draws, looking at the hotspots and where things are kicking off, um, the highest rates and so on, I think she creates a pretty compelling argument. And um, I think, you know, you'll hear in this conversation that uh, the writing is on the wall for glyphosate. Um, there are now thousands of lawsuits. Um, we are seeing that Bayer has just get, is just getting nailed with fines. They're losing lawsuits. And now we see that aerosolized glyphosate in the form of manufacturing biodiesel, uh, burning biodiesel, might actually be a major contributor to those people who are contracting COVID-19 and also experiencing very, very severe symptoms. So I'm going to leave that part of the conversation right there. You can tune into the whole podcast and just listen to that. The second half of our conversation 
we sort of really just opened things up into a more casual conversation. And, uh, you know, since we do have a data scientist and someone who's, who's uh, good at that, um, I really asked uh, Stephanie what, her, um, what she thought about the pandemic, you know, so, so uh, what, what her take on things is from a data perspective, um, what could we have done better? Um, does the data match up to the response and so on and so on and of course we could not leave this conversation without talking about the rushed vaccine for COVID-19 so we talk uh, a fair bit about that actually and I think that you will appreciate um, both of our insights into why it's just such a bad idea but I think what you're going to find is um, the the sort of startlingly obvious truth here is that so many people have been feared into believing that the only solution that's left after all of this is going to be a vaccine that has been rushed to market. So again, I'm going to leave that part of the conversation there too. Um, tune in and listen. It's a great episode. And incidentally, uh, Stephanie is, was my first guest on the show uh, many years back now, three years, four years, and she's now the final guest for season three. So uh, delighted to have her back on the show. And I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, please subscribe, review, share this with your friends, your family, your community. And uh, yeah, I would love it if you just um, gave me a quick review on iTunes. It really helps. And uh, yeah, we'll leave it at that. So here is Dr. Stephanie Seneff. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Holistic Health Masterclass podcast. Uh, whether you're tuning in on the podcast or on YouTube or on Facebook or wherever, uh, I'm delighted today to have Dr. Stephanie Seneff with me. Um, she was actually the first guest on the show uh, going back um, three or four years now, I forget. And uh, so, yeah, we, this will be the last episode for season three. And Stephanie, welcome to the show. It's really great to have you here today. Thanks for having me back. My pleasure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, last time you were here, uh, we spoke a lot about glyphosate. And obviously, that whole conversation has just evolved so much in the last few years. It's kind of crazy. Um, at the time of recording, uh, I think it was a press release just a few days ago where Bayer has now um, been ordered to pay $10.9 billion. And there's right. tens of thousands of lawsuits. So, um, but today, we are going to talk all about some a very interesting story that you've started to uncover, and we're going to really talk about glyphosate as it relates to COVID-19 or the current coronavirus um, pandemic. So welcome to the show. Um, I, I, I'm trying to figure out where you want to start and because um, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack, but perhaps I know. start with um, just a, 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 your take and what you know as an MIT research scientist, what are your, what's your take on COVID-19 with regards to symptoms, um, some of the data that we've been looking at uh, and, and so forth? It's quite remarkable. And I really picked up on this early on as soon as I started to see the disease and the symptoms of the people who were having a catastrophic response. Uh, fortunately, I had just been looking into a lung disease that's caused by, uh, by these e-cigarettes, vaping lung disease. And I'd been studying that. And I was like, gosh, this looks just like that disease. It has exactly the same symptoms, even to the extent of no runny nose. It's sort of a characteristic feature of COVID-19 that there's a dry cough and you don't have a lot of mucans in your nose. And that was the same thing that was noted with this strange new lung disease that's occurring with people who vape. And so vaping, so I was looking into vaping and I was finding glycerol. And so glycerol is a major component of the, what the oil that's in there, or it's not really an oil, but the substance that is in there that allows them to, to burn and release the nicotine that they breathe in is uh, glycerol. And glycerol is a very interesting molecule, but it's a, um, it's a major component of lipids, you know, so the fats, fats have uh, triglycerides, the triglycerides, the gliss is glycerol. It, it ties these three um, fatty acids together with this mm -hmm. glycerol molecule. When you break down um, biomass, so this is like oils, for example, um, soybean oil or olive oil, people are developing a technology that breaks down um, these oils and other kinds of um, sources of, of uh, bio, just basically anything that's been recently produced by, you know, growth of vegetation in the, um, in the current time, they take all that stuff and turn it into a, a biofuel, biodiesel or aviation biofuel, or they have a home heating oil, all these different biofuels that can be derived from um, these organic matter, which is replacing uh, oil. So you're basically trying to minimize your use of oil 
resources mm-hmm. uh, by creating on the fly sort of uh, a fuel that's a lot like oil, biodiesel fuel in particular, for example, biogas is, is methane, mostly methane. All these things come out of this processing. And when you're done, you end up with glycerol. It's a byproduct. So there's tons of it. So they, there were discussions back in the early you know, 2010 kind of framework where they were like, what are we going to do with all this glycerol? Because clearly we're going to have a lot of glycerol once we produce these biofuels. And I suspect there was sort of an aha moment when they thought we can make these e-cigarettes, you know, um, out of the glycerol and that can help be a way to uh, have a cheap source of glycerol to make these e-cigarettes. And because it's not a food, it probably doesn't require food, food, food grade standards because you can take the, the raw glycerol and process it, you know, refine it and get something that's more of a pure glycerol product for use in foods. My guess is you don't have to do that for these e-cigarettes because you're not eating it. So it's probably, um, you know, just the raw glycerol that has all kinds of stuff in it. And one of those things that might be in it is glyphosate, in my opinion. Have, have, you, have you done any testing on that at all? I mean, I know the e-cigarettes are not really your domain at all, but <laughs> yeah, is, is there I, anything, I, like, has anyone looked at that at all? Uh, yeah, I have a friend who is looking into it and he has results, but he's uh, keeping mum. So we have to wait until this paper comes out. But fair, fair enough. Um, we have fair some enough. interesting um, data on that, but it's... Um, Okay. So it's uh, anyway, if it is in there, which it makes sense to me because these bio, so, uh, you know, for example, the home heating oils, they, they have a lot of the developing technology where they take the waste oil from, a, from the restaurant industry and they, and then they, they process it through this process to produce biodiesel fuel with this glycerol byproduct. But they also use the, um, the residue from the crops. So for example, the wheat crop, when the wheat is harvested, you have all the stalks and you can, you can sort of harvest uh, the stalks and then haul them off on a barge down a river and deliver them to a processing plant in the city. Um, this is something that the U.S. is, uh, is a leader in this space. It's a oh, sort yeah. of a new technology and it's been growing rapidly the last few years mm-hmm. uh, to, um, to capitalize on, on the residue of the crop to turn it into a, a, a usable fuel. And uh, New York City is, is a leader, a very uh, uh, major leader in that space. Uh, and mostly it's cities that are at the mouth of large waterways. So you have New York City, Washington, D.C., um, New Orleans. All those cities are leaders in this space of developing biofuels. So when you say leaders, are you talking about leaders in terms of the actual manufacturing of the biofuels? Or yeah. is it also the using of the biofuels? Yeah. So They manufacture it, they use it. For example, New York City has like 11,000 buses, uh, public vehicles that run on partially on biodiesel fuel running in the city. Okay. And New York City requires uh, a 5% diesel home heating oil. If you use home heating oil to heat your house, it has to be by law in New York City, 5% diesel, so biodiesel. Biodiesel. Okay, so that's interesting. And, and do we know um, in New York City, are there a lot of homes and apartments that are heated like that? Is it quite a common Yeah, thing? I haven't done the research to see exactly how many homes yeah. are heated that way. But there's also the biogas. And that's what's gotten really interesting to me lately. I've been really diving into the story of the New York City sewer system. So it's just really, really gets more and more interesting as you look because they're, they're learning how to pile everything together from the from the waste from the sewer system, um, from the waste manure from from the um, from the dairy industry, from the waste meat products, from the meat processing plants, you know, and then the residue from the crop. You spray the, cl- the, the wheat with glyphosate just a few days before harvest. You harvest the wheat and then you haul off all that, all those stalks loaded with glyphosate, you know, and pile them into mm-hmm. this process. So they've, New York City has a whole, I and mean, there's a whole interesting story about New York City. At, there's this very, very polluted um, creek between that separates Queens from, from um, Brooklyn. And Queens and Brooklyn are the epicenter of the epicenter of, the, of, uh, of COVID-19. New York, you know, really got hit hard. New York City got hit really hard. And Queens and Brooklyn are, got hit the hardest among the people in New York City. And this, this plant, there's like a 50-acre place that was originally developed in 1967 to process New York City's sewer, uh, the, the sewer waste management system. And then they up- upgraded it. They, it, was a, it was considered a toxic waste site, and they got funding to, to fix it in tw- 2010. The, the creek has a thick layer of, of stuff at the bottom that's incredibly polluted. With There have been a lot of oil spills. I mean, it's a long history of, of pollution there in that, in that little creek. And, this, mm. and so this waste processing plant, they upgraded it, and they added these uh, digester eggs, they call them. They're actually quite scenic, and they've become almost a landmark of New York City, these digester eggs several of them and they're big and they 
our anaerobic digesters. So anaerobic digester is something I've really become aware of. It's a way to convert biomass into methane gas. You know, it's a gas which is mostly methane and other kinds of stuff in there that are contaminants. And so New York City not only figured out how to get, so originally the sewer, in the old days, you just dumped the sewer into the, into the ocean. You know, we just got rid of it into the ocean. Mm-hmm. And we finally realized we were polluting the oceans. We can't do that. So then we decided to start, use microbes to digest it. And you have to sort of heat it up to increase the, the, the rate of activity of the microbes to break everything down. The heat requires, you need energy for the heat. Uh, originally, they were just letting the methane gas escape into the air, which is a really nasty, um, you know, gas for uh, carbon, it, it's much worse than uh, carbon dioxide. It's like 60 times as bad as carbon dioxide. Yeah, for, for, as for, a, from a climate change, from a global heating problem. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so then they were complaining about, you know, losing all this methane gas. You gotta catch. So then also, while well, we can use it, if we can catch it, we can use it to burn and get heat so they can have a whole closed system where you, it's a great idea, right? Catch the methane gas, run it back around and heat your, heat your stuff up so that it will degrade and make yeah. more methane gas is kind of a nice closed ecosystem. Yeah, well, f- farmers, I believe, came up with a system uh, quite a while ago, some farmers anyway, like one-off you know, operations where they would have big um, tanks on the farms and they would dump all the manure in there and it would exactly. stay closed and they would sort of recycle that uh, in an effort to, to reduce um, emissions and waste and all that sort of stuff. So right, it doesn't surprise me. So I didn't gas. know that they were doing that in New York City. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, I didn't either. I have to say I've been reading all this stuff. Just I didn't really know anything about all of this until like, COVID-19 hit and I started digging into it and it just got bigger and bigger, you know, more and more interesting because it also connects to the cruise ships. You know, we have these cruise ship outbreaks. We have these meat processing plant outbreaks. I mean, there's specific outbreaks in places that have these anaerobic digesters. So it's really becoming a pattern. It turns out the cruise ships only in the last couple of years started introducing an anaerobic digester on board the ship. You know, they have a huge amount of food waste on on the cruise ships. So they think this is, and of course they're getting complaints about polluting. They're trying to, they have terrible diesel fuel. The, the fuel that's used on the cruise ships is really low grade diesel. Hmm. And I've been on a cruise ship where I couldn't get away from the, from the fumes. I was so, I couldn't enjoy oh. myself because the fumes are everywhere. You know, I'm sensitive to diesel, diesel fumes and yeah. um, rightfully so. It turns out diesel is, is a uniquely toxic in combination with glyphosate. And I learned this from a really interesting case study of a guy who was trying to he had some equipment he had used to spray a glyphosate-based herbicide on his crops, and then he was trying to got clogged, so he was trying to clean it. He got a bucket of diesel fuel as a as a solvent to try to clean this thing. So he was in this room with this diesel fuel and this glyphosate-riddled mm. you know equipment, and he washed the equipment in the fuel, and he started coughing up blood, and he got rushed to the wow. hospital and was diagnosed with pneumonitis. So it looks like to me that. It makes sense to me because they add stuff to the Roundup to make glyphosate much more toxic than it would otherwise be. They add these um, surfactants that help to promote glyphosate uptake by the weeds, and that makes it also much more toxic to us. But but I think that diesel fuel was acting like a surfactant to enable the glyphosate to get into his lungs and get absorbed. Okay, That's my guess. So, um, so, so j- just to push us forward a little bit, um, one of the big things that I sort of gleaned from reading up on, on this in preparation was the aerosolization, if that's the right word, um, of glyphosate, right? So in other words, glyphosate now yes. becoming airborne and uh, people breathing it in. That's what you know, I'm Because I think when we typically think of glyphosate, I mean, the, the big concern's always been it's on my food and I'm now going to eat it or I'm a farmer and I'm spraying it and I've got to have all my gear on because I don't want to inhale it, obviously, if I'm spraying it, but I don't want it to get on my skin. And so everything that you've been talking about now, you know, these anaerobic bacteria and the burning of, you know, the buses, for example, the burning of these biofuels, um, you know, now glyphosate has sort of, it's, it's become smoke in a way in the air. And I That's just want to tee this up for you a little bit as well, because one thing I also read was this is not just isolated to New York City and to, some of, to the U.S. Um, these biofuels are are actually being burned elsewhere yes. and there are some pretty striking um, correlations when you look at yeah. Italy and you look at some of these other places right yeah absolutely my Italy, Europe was where I started because of course Europe got hit before we did and I was looking already by then I was looking specifically at Lombardy and Lombardy has a, a biofuel uh, industry 
there where they take the uh, olive oil, they take the, the waste olive oil from the food from the restaurants and they turn it into biodiesel fuel and they use it in the, um, in the trucks in, and buses in mm -hmm. Lombardy. It's a pretty advanced, uh, sophisticated system they have there. And they spray the, uh, around the olive trees routinely with glyphosate. So they're using a lot of glyphosate on the olive trees. It's getting into the oil. I think, and then it's somehow it's not getting broken down by the whole process, which I think is possible because it's not extremely high heat. You need extremely high heat to break glyphosate down. But these anaerobic digesters, for example, they can't be, um, if they're too hot, they'll kill the microbes. So they have, they want to be warm, but not, uh, but not excessively hot. Now when you're burning, you know, the engine gets very high heat and it would break the glyphosate down. But if you've got a, a poorly tuned engine on an old vehicle, you have these buses that are spewing out fumes it, it, there's lots of stuff in there. And the nan nanoparticles, of course, are also toxic. And there was actually a nice, there have been several studies, both in, in China, in Europe, in the U.S., that have linked um, COVID-19 to, to air pollution. That's very solid. Okay. It, there was a nice study, Harvard-based study um, in, in the U.S. that looked at the entire country and looked county by county. And they actually had a way to, there were records of the nanoparticles, uh, the, the, the level of nanoparticles in that county that they could correlate then with the, with the COVID-19 death rate. And they found striking correlations between increased nanoparticles, which is an indication of, of basically, you know, toxic fumes uh, in the air, uh, high, poor quality air. So, and so um, ju just, just to, to pull some things together for our listeners, because I'm, I'm sort of also having this question is uh, when we say that there's correlations with air pollution and COVID-19, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean yeah. that air pollution is making us more susceptible? Does it mean it's exacerbating the symptoms that may already be there? Is it bringing on the symptoms in people who are asymptomatic? Um, you know, so I don't know, maybe you want to get into that a little bit. No, and then of course also, what is it in those, uh, in those air particles? What is it in the air pollution that's actually causing the problem is a big question. And there are many possibilities. And the nanoparticles certainly are known to be toxic. There's also nitrogen oxides, there's sulfur dioxide, there's cyanide. Uh, there's a lot of stuff, you know, yeah, in those. Yeah. We know air pollution is toxic. And we know that people who breathe a lot of polluted air have issues with their lungs. They have asthma and bronchitis. I mean, there's all kinds of increased risk to lung disease. And COPD is people. another one, right? I mean, that's COPD, a very common that's one right. around the world. And in fact, in New York City, in that area, around that plant, that 50-acre uh, plant, they have a 25% higher rate of these conditions, these lung conditions, oh, wow. than they do in the rest of New York City. So, so, so this very is pre-COVID, pre right? Pre-COVID. This oh, is wow. just, you know, yeah, they just have an increased risk to these lung conditions, which makes sense because you're breathing this toxic air. But exactly what is it in the air that's causing it? And that's where the glyphosate gets extremely interesting, and specifically with respect to the vaping, because I had been studying the vaping, as I said, and they've done some nice studies. They, they don't understand this, this strange lung disease, which, as I said, looks exactly like COVID-19 in terms of its symptoms. And uh, so they actually have been doing studies on mice. They've shown that the uh, the glycerol alone, like they've had the, um, people smoke without the nicotine, it's still toxic. So they oh, know okay. it's not necessarily because of the nicotine. There's something else in there, and, and specifically the glycerol. And, um, but they exposed these um, mice for four months. They exposed them to, to fumes from vaping, vaping fumes. And then they, they had the clever idea of, of infecting them with flu virus. And, of course, this is all pre-COVID-19, but it's very recent. I think this paper was last year. Um, they infected these mice with the flu virus and they expected them to have an increased uh, sensitivity to the virus. I guess they had sort of learned that from human studies. And in fact, they confirmed that was the case, that the, their lungs uh, responded much more intensely. This is what we're seeing with COVID-19. The people who are getting sick are having a very intense response. Their immune system is on fire. It overreacts to the virus, spewing out all these cytokines which causes this inflammatory response, which then causes this incredible cascade of, of downhill stuff that ends up with, you know, massive um, blood failure. Basically, you get multiple organ failure, you get in you know, all these blood clots. It can really deteriorate into a huge mess. And it, and it starts with um, hypoxia, you know, mm -hmm. insufficient oxygen, which is what triggers a whole signaling cascade that involves, you know, trying to, the body's trying to respond to fix the problem, but it's breaking it more. And I think that's because the glyphosate's messing things up. And I specifically have identified glyphosate's unique mechanism of toxicity. I keep talking about this and I'm not getting traction because people are saying, no, it's not possible, but it's not true that it's not possible, which is that glyphosate 
is getting into proteins by mistake in place of the coding amino acid glycine. And this has been my message now for many years. Um, I keep trying <laughs> because I really believe it's true. And the evidence is, is absolutely overwhelming in my opinion, even from the data, Monsanto's own da data regarding the specific enzyme that glyphosate disrupts famously to kill the weeds, which is this EPSP synthase, an enzyme in the shikimate pathway. Mm -hmm. That's the whole story of how it kills the weeds. Well, that particular enzyme has a glycine residue, highly conserved, highly important at the place where glyphosate messes things up. And they found empirically that if you get rid of that glycine, if you mutate the protein so that that glycine is no longer glycine, the protein is imper impermeable to glyphosate. Glyphosate doesn't affect it at any level. So wow. very specifically, that glycine is critical for that protein to be affected by glyphosate. And it makes sense because glyphosate has, is a glycine molecule. It's a complete glycine molecule and it's an amino acid. So it's got everything right. It just has extra stuff stuck on its nitrogen atom. Mm. And that extra stuff is a methylphosphonate, which can fit into the place where the substrate's supposed to bind. And so I'm looking at, at enzymes specifically that bind phosphate-containing molecules, because that's what this EPSP synthase does. It binds phosphoenolpyruvate. It binds the phosphate at the place where glyphosate messes it up. So you can say enzymes that bind phosphate at a site where glycine is highly conserved, turns out there's a lot of them. And they play a critical role in many different metabolic processes. And I've been collecting a huge list and I can connect them to all the diseases that also there's all these diseases that are going up dramatically in our society. As soon as people start adopting a diet, I believe that's glyphosate contaminated, they're gonna start getting fat, they're gonna start getting diabetes, uh, the kids are going to start getting autism, uh, old people will get Alzheimer's disease. All of these diseases are going up dramatically in our society. And many of those diseases that are going up exactly in step with glyphosate are risk factors for acute outcome in COVID-19. There's a long list of now of diseases that are, if you have these risk factors, obesity is certainly one of them, uh, you are at higher risk. Yeah, exactly. And and I think, you know, when we look back, you know, now that we've had a few months to actually gather some data and look back, you know, in hindsight, um, I think that, you know, probably one thing that everyone can agree on is that if you have pre-existing comorbidities, like high blood pressure, like diabetes, like heart disease, like metabolic syndrome, so many of the things that you've been talking about, um, we know that that demographic, especially when you map that onto uh, an aged population, so 65 plus, 70 plus, yes. you know, that is really just, you know, th that's the demographic that's getting nailed in terms of not just infection rates, but in terms of really poor and aggressive response, um, that's right. you know, fatalities and so forth. So, um, so, so now, you know, one thing that I also, uh, in researching for this podcast, the, the, um, airborne form of glyphosate, they've actually done some interesting studies on that mm -hmm. where they've actually exposed, um, I believe they've exposed mice to aerosolized glyphosate to see what yes. sort of symptoms and, and that matches very perfectly with COVID symptoms and matches very well with the vaping studies that you were talking about. It's all, it all, it all is consistent. Yeah. It's yeah. really amazing. And in fact, the, um, the vaping study on the mice, I didn't quite finish that story because they looked, so first of all, they saw those mice had a super reaction to the, to the flu virus, but they also did examination of their lung tissue to see if they, they could see if something was wrong with it. And they actually identified two very important things. One is that there were these surfactant proteins that were suppressed. They were not being properly expressed. Those surfactants are really important for trapping the virus and allowing the macrophages to clear it. So that means they couldn't effectively clear the virus. And two was their macrophages that invaded the lung accumulated fatty deposits inside them. They, they accumulated fat, um, which is a characteristic feature of glyphosate in the liver. It's been shown in multiple studies. And in fact, a stat, study on rats exposed to glyphosate orally. So, you know, not through the, not through breathing, but this orally through the gut. Um, they, they watched that. They saw that their liver accumulated fatty deposits inside macrophage is just the same as what was going on in the lungs. So with this, you know, depending upon your exposure path, a different organ gets the fatty deposits. And we have an epidemic in fatty liver disease. There's another study on humans that showed that people who had fatty liver disease had higher levels of glyphosate in their urine, statistically significantly higher than people who didn't. And furthermore, the ones who had more advanced disease had statistically significant higher levels of glyphosate than the ones who had less advanced disease. All of that was statistically significant. It's quite remarkable. I was surprised that you could catch it just from the standpoint of how much glyphosate was in their urine. 
Yeah. So, so if the if the the macrophages for just for lay people are essentially um, scavengers, right? So they mm-hmm. travel around the body and they're gonna you know mop up um, debris, toxins, um, pathogens, mm-hmm. and so forth. And um, so so when they when they uh, absorb fats and those that that unit gets um, you know deposited somewhere, what does that do to the localized tissue? Like, does that cause oxidative stress, inflammation? And yeah, I mean, fatty tissue. liver disease is sort of the first step in a long uh, series of things that can go into liver cirrhosis, you know, steatohepatitis, you get all these as sort of hardening of the liver, fibrosis of the liver, you get liver cancer, all those things eventually yeah. evolve, but, evolve so if, into if that, that. I mean, do we know, are these, um, you know, macrophage fatty deposits, are they getting trapped in people's lungs? Are they causing, you know, fibrosis? That's what I think. I mean, that's what's so happening yeah. with, um, with these uh, mice that are exposed to, uh, to the glycerol. Um, they got these fatty deposits in their lungs. So I think we're probably doing the same thing. Now, I don't, I haven't seen a paper specifically talking about that. I'd love to see that with respect to COVID-19. If someone would say, oh my gosh, this is a weird, you know, symptom of COVID-19 is this fatty deposits in the lungs. I haven't heard that yet. Well, I, I um, mean, I've, I've heard not, not fatty deposits per se, but I mean, I think we know that um, there's a, a lot of good data right now showing that people who have recovered from COVID-19, a lot of them have, you know, loss of function to, to lung tissue and so forth. Right. Um, yeah, some, some, some of them are, you know, permanent damage to the order of around 30% loss of functionality. And, you know, I mean, the question begs why, you know, why is it happening? And I think there's probably more than one answer. Uh, to, yeah. to that question yeah. um, so you know so again just to sort of pull us pull things together a little bit if we're saying that the expression and the the symptomatic expression of um, you know the vaping the aerosolized uh, glyphosate and COVID-19 there's some very there's a lot of overlap there what are we really what are we really saying here like are we hypothetically saying that if someone was not exposed to glyphosate and they got coronavirus, would they have a better chance at surviving it? I think they might not even notice it. And in fact, it's quite striking when you look at Taiwan. I've been looking at different countries around the world. Of course, Europe's been hit pretty hard and Europe's got a pretty heavy uh, bias towards biofuel. They've been using a lot of biodiesel fuel in their vehicles on the roads for quite some time. They're a leader in that space. So Europe and U.S. are leaders and also Brazil. U.S. and Brazil are number one, number two consumption of biofuels in the world. And they're also and right, right near the top of cases as well, right? We're number one and number two in terms yeah. of the number of deaths. The U.S. has tw- something like 26, 27% of the, maybe even more of the deaths are U.S. And another 11% are Brazil. They're, they're number one, number two on the deaths, yeah. number one, yeah. number two on the biofuels by far. The next country is way down compared to those two. Mm-hmm. So it's quite striking. Uh, Taiwan is interesting. I've been looking at Taiwan because they have almost no cases. I think they've had like seven deaths. Taiwan's a big country with a large population right next door to China. They should have been hit, hit early. They should have been hit hard. They were, you know, and they all say, well, they were so careful. I, I get annoyed because it's always, it's, oh, we're not careful enough. And they were so careful and, you know, we're irresponsible and they're responsible. We, we try to explain it by, you know, we're not being socially distancing enough. That's been our big answer. And, and but you look at the difference between us and Taiwan, it's just incredible. I mean, it cannot be simply social distancing that's explaining that. And Taiwan, I looked into Taiwan with respect. First of all, I know Taiwan doesn't use much glyphosate. They don't have any GMO crops. And on top of that, they don't have any biofuel. They actually tried biofuel something like 10 or 12 years ago. And they had some trouble because of the humid climate. It was, they tried just a little bit, like 1% or 2% in the, in the automobiles. And they found it was gumming up the engine because microbes were growing because of the humid climate. I mean, they basically said, this isn't working. You know, we're not, this is not viable. So they decided to can the whole thing. And this was like, I don't know, 2010, 2012. They said, we're not doing biofuels. So they have none, no biofuels. They have very little glyphosate and they have basically no problem with COVID-19. So I believe it would not have even been an epidemic if glyphosate were not on this planet. That's my, that's my very strong controversial claim if we didn't have glyphosate we would not have this epidemic and we're going to see i think that the countries that have number one the most glyphosate and number two the most biofuels those are going to be the countries that are hit the hardest we're going to see a pattern like that. i'm seeing a pattern like that Okay. And, and I think it's important to point out that one of your, you know, areas of expertise is actually able, is being able to look at large amounts of data and um, interpreting that data, right? 
Yeah, the correlations that we're finding are stunning. And, and really, all of these diseases that you mentioned that are risk factors, we have data on all of them showing very incredibly good matches between the rise in glyphosate usage on core crops and the rise in those diseases in the United States. We have plots with stunning correlation p-value. So a p-value is, uh, is a measure of the degree to which the data are reliable. Mm -hmm. And if it's less than 0.05, it's considered to be, you can call it statistically significant. And when people say it's statistically significant, they mean the p-value is less than 0.05. All of those correlations are, have a p-value of something like 0.00000. I mean, there's several zeros before you get the first non-zero digit. They're extremely, extremely highly correlated. And autism, dementia, uh, you know, liver disease, um, pancreatic cancer, uh, diabetes, obesity, um, you know, uh, high blood pressure, high serum cholesterol, they're all highly, highly correlated with glyphosate usage on core crops. And people say, oh, correlation doesn't mean, you know, causation, you can ignore this. Mm -hmm. And they also say, of course, how could one chemical cause so many diseases? And that's what I say too. My gosh, how could this chemical be so potent to cause all these diseases? The answer is the glycine substitution. That is a unique mechanism of toxicity unique to glyphosate and, and, and insidious and slow and very, very dangerous. It accumulates in your body over time. And, um, and I think it's causing all, you know, the, the rise. Not to say other things don't cause those diseases. I always have to be, make that clear, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing, uh, you know, I had um, Jeffrey Smith on the show quite a while back and he just, he released a movie, I think it was last year or the year before, I forget, uh, called um, Secret Ingredients, I think was the name. Mm -hmm. of the yeah, movie. I, I love that movie. I saw it before yeah. it was released. So right. And, and I, I think, you know, the, the sort of not to spoil it for everyone, uh, if you haven't seen it yet, but uh, essentially, you know, a bunch of families that had multiple diseases, you know, I think the one poor family, I think they had 42 diagnosed chronic illnesses. And I don't even think they were 40 years old, you know, the parents mm -hmm. and the kids and everybody uh, was sick, too. Yeah, it was something crazy. I mean, and then just multiple diseases between them. And you know, the thing that I really took away from that film was that what happened to their health when they just went 100% organic. And, you know, when, when you go 100% organic, I mean, yes, you've got the GMO seeds that you're not eating. But I think the big differentiator is the no, um, you know, no, no pesticides, right? No glyphosate. I think so, for sure. Yeah. And that's sort of the common denominator in terms of what else changed, you know, because it's not like they radically changed their diet all that much. You know, they were actually eating healthy foods but they just happened to be non-organic and they were sprayed right. and desiccated and whatnot. So, um, so there's a, I have a striking personal story because my husband was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes probably 25 years ago and he was put on various drugs. At his peak, he was taking two different um, you know, dr drugs and at high levels. He went through a whole, he started going organic you know, about when I discovered glyphosate, so maybe eight years ago. And, um, and we've been very strict with our organic diet, occasionally cheap when we eat out at restaurants, but we don't eat out very much. So um, very, very careful. And his diabetes just got better and better and better. He was shedding his, he, he got rid of one of the medicines. He start, cut the other one by half. He cut by half again. He finally got rid of all the medicines altogether. And he just had his, his last number on his hemoglobin A1C that was the best he's ever seen with wow. no medicine. I mean, that's really, really dramatic. It's, it's an wow. anecdotal, but it's powerful. But I think also, you know, I, I think that too often people throw anecdotal evidence out. And, and I think it's important for us to actually look at anecdotal evidence because not everything is captured in the in the literature. Not everyone is looking at, um, you know, data points and, and so forth, you know, at all of the data points and over all different populations and all the variables. So, you know, I think anecdotal evidence, once it starts accumulating enough, um, it at least gives us uh, something else to look at and sort of go, okay, wow, you know, there's enough of this stuff accumulating now. Um, ju just, just like on the flip side of the coin where, you know, we've now, I mean, I was shocked when I read the Bayer, um, the news, news release last week or a few days ago. I couldn't believe that it's now 125,000 cases that, that they're being sued by 125,000. I know. And what's sad is that they they're getting off with highway robbery. I think it's a really good deal for them to settle with this amount of money. It should be way more than that for, for the amount of damage they've caused. And I'm hoping that autism, if the autism community can figure out, can get enough evidence to prove that glyphosate is causing autism, I think that would be so stunning. And that will definitely take Monsanto off the market, I believe. If you can start getting winning on lawsuits for autism and glyphosate, autism is what got me started and it breaks my heart. And today, New Jersey has uh, the highest rate of autism in our country with one in 20 boys 
in New Jersey have autism. It is a stunning number. And, and you know, I think I get frustrated that we're so hysterical about this COVID-19, but we're not hysterical about autism. We're just letting it happen. Now we've got the, the first crop growing up. We don't have any, any place to put them. We you, you don't, don't know how to deal with autistic adults, you know, so all the parents are scrambling to figure out what to do. And we're going to get a bunch more every year. We're going to get a lot more than we had the year before. So, so why, why, why New Jersey specifically? I mean, because I know that California, there's pockets of California as well, where the rates are off the charts as well. Yes. There, you know, they've got giant almond groves and there's this farming hub of the U.S. But, but New Jersey is not really known for farming at all. New Jersey is kind of New York's New York City's dumping ground. It's got a huge number of toxic chemicals in New Jersey. It's a very highly polluted um, state with a lot of poor air quality, and um, and so uh, it, it, it's true they don't probably don't grow a lot of crops because it's a very dense state, a dense, a densely populated state. So I think it's mostly from the toxics, uh, toxic exposures from the cities. Yeah, and one one of course has to wonder in light of our conversation um, how much of it, how much of that is related to aerosolized um, glyphosate. I know that's what I'm wondering, and I actually met someone who lived in in New York City. Um, she had an autistic son. She was you know doing everything she could to try to fix it, and it was really frustrating for her because she had her child had no vaccines, so she was concerned about vaccines causing autism. She had was very careful, no vaccines, strictly organic diet. She ate an organic diet while she was pregnant. Her son had autism and she lived in New York City. So now I'm thinking maybe it was just breathing. I mean, it's really sad if you think breathing alone can cause autism, but maybe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think time will tell. And look, I mean, the, the bottom line uh, after everything that we've just said, I mean, um, I, I know that you and I have both been staunch um, anti-Monsanto advocates for quite some time now. And I just think the more that time pushes on and the more data that we get, the more damage we see, the more lawsuits that happen the writing's on the wall, you, you know, I mean, I just, yeah. we cannot deny that this is not causing problems, you know, to what degree is it causing problems? Well, right. we could probably debate that all day long, but we can't say that it's not causing any problems anymore. Right. You know, I mean, from the farmer's field to the health of people, the, it's, it's pretty clear. And, and also the birds and the bees. I mean, the butterflies, the, um, the, the, the bees, you know, we have a catastrophe coming with the bees. I think glyphosate's playing a major role. The other chemicals are too, certainly the insecticides. But glyphosate is synergistically toxic with the insecticides because the bees, they make a cytochrome P450 enzymes is what they use to detox the insecticides and glyphosate suppresses those. So they are really, it's a synergistic toxic effect between multiple chemicals that's really taking us down. And we've got so many, you know, you can always blame the other chemical and that's one thing they do. Like they can't really study the farmers with respect to glyphosate because there's so many other chemicals they're exposed to, you know? Right. Right. Um, if, if I can, while I have you here, since you do look at data, um, can we can we talk about COVID nineteen just for a minute? Um, okay. Uh, what what are, what are your your thoughts in in terms of looking at um, looking at data, looking at numbers, and just with the way things are going now? You, you know, I think in the beginning, people we were expecting this giant you know surge of hundreds of thousands of people dying and that hasn't really happened and as we open things up the numbers are going up but there's debate as to whether the death rates are going down i don't know just just your thoughts anyway i mean i don't have any specific questions and i don't want to put mm. you on the spot either so if you if you don't want to open yourself up that's totally fine well one thing i will say is it's frustrating to me that they're not telling us to get out in the sunlight get get vitamin d because you know vitamin d will help to strengthen the immune system to eat a healthy diet to eat whole foods to eat organic foods. This is the messaging we should be hearing as far as how to prevent this from becoming such a horrible epidemic. There's huge numbers of people who are vitamin D deficient. That's also connected to glyphosate. It's, it it just destroys the liver's ability to activate vitamin D through these cytochrome P450 enzymes. So just by getting rid of the toxic chemicals and getting out in the sunlight, you know, getting the vitamin D and, and, all, the, and all the health that sunlight gives you, I'm very much of a fan of salt sunlight exposure. That's so simple. And yet we tell people stay inside, you know, so we're going the opposite way. And this, you know, I think the emphasis is wrong on how we deal with it. Also, of course, in treating it, you know, sort of, uh, again, treating it with natural herbs and things like that. Um, I, I've been taking um, a tincture of, um, of licorice and a tincture of rosemary because I've learned from reading my reading that they have these magic molecules in them. They're these complex organic molecules that are produced by these plants, these herbs in particular, that have benefit in terms of helping to protect you from, from infection. And so, um, you know, taking things like that 
natural solutions to the problem rather than um, all the the whole thing that pharma does with respect to taking yeah. you know toxic um, pharmaceuticals. But I think. You know, I, I think I probably believe that, well, first of all, we would have been so much better off if we didn't have such a toxic environment. We probably wouldn't have even noticed this virus. That's what I think. It would not have been a problem, number one. And number two, so actually when the air pollution improves, you know, the, the rates go down. The air, air pollution goes way down because people aren't driving. Right. And then you're not as sensitive anymore because the air is safe. I think it's a, a very a huge thing would be just don't drive, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> try to keep your air healthy. That would be something they should be saying, you know, and they have occasionally said that actually they've noticed that when they're maybe the air pollution, they've even said that, I mean, there've been several papers, as I said, on the air pollution. So that's quite interesting. Um, I think recognizing that, that there's a specific group of people who are sensitive, the people who have these comorbidities, people who are old, I think it would have been a better approach to say, let the entire population go do its thing. Don't show, shut down anything. Let the shops keep going. Just make sure those particular people, and they know who they are, uh, self, they practice strict self-distancing. You stay home and you know, have someone else shop for them and really stay away from people to, say, to sort of uh, protect the people who are susceptible rather than the entire population, that allows the bug to spread and for many people to get immunity, which is going to then reduce the infection rate. So, as you know, we need to get, it's a brand new bug, so it's, no one's prepared for it. So initially we're going to get this huge spike, but if we could just tame the bug by letting children get exposed and get immune, and then eventually it'll help to prevent the spread rate, you know, to let, because we still have this hurdle to get over for as long as we delay, we're just going to have, we're not really getting rid of the problem. We're just spreading it out. And meanwhile, we're wrecking the economy. So I think it's kind of a stupid thing to do. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's where, you know, people have very short memories. You know, the, the initial two week lockdown was, you know, the whole flatten the curve campaign and all this other stuff. You know, flatten the curve doesn't mean you, you decimate the curve and it doesn't exist. It just means you flatten it. So yeah. you might still have the same amount of people, but you're just, instead of having it all in two weeks, you're going to have it over two months or eight weeks or whatever the case may be. And, and I think now a lot of people are equating lockdown with, you know, the, we'll wipe the virus out. And it's like, no, that's not, not how it works, you know. Yeah. And as you said, you know, I mean, that's the huge debate going on right now. Like, was lockdown worth it? Right. And of course, there are people who are terrified now. They've managed to inspire the fear of God in them. Like, oh, my God, this virus is going to kill me. And they're so petrified every time they go out. You know, it's, uh, yeah. it's really strange how people are susceptible to this kind of um, I mean, in your, in, so from a data perspective, like, do you feel, I, you know, and this is not to minimize people that have legitimately got sick or lost loved ones or anything like that, but I mean, do, do you feel that this is a legitimate pandemic? I mean, are the, mm. is that, I don't know what the classification of a pandemic really is, you know, but right. um, in terms of infection rates, in terms of infection fatality rates, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah, I just think that we overreacted. I think that we're, we have to face the fact that we do have, I think it's true that we do have a new virus out there uh, that humans are not really prepared to deal with at the moment. We need to train for it, really. And I think the virus will also evolve to a more benign form if it gets a chance started. to have yeah. exposure. Yeah. So we just need to let that process happen. We need to get through that phase and move on. And then it's just going to be another virus that's in our environment. You know, I, I, um, mm -hmm. I'm amused by this um, enthusiasm for the vaccine. It's like, okay, we're going to get this vaccine and then everything's going to be great. You know, yeah. so it's like, oh, thank God we finally have a vaccine. The world, it's all over. And that's just not going to be true at all. I don't think. I think the vaccine is going to cause a lot of trouble. They've done enormous study. They've been working really hard to try to get a coronavirus vaccine for at least 20 years or practically 20 years and they have not succeeded and they've gotten some vaccines that are beautiful as far as producing antibodies. But then when they actually exposed, this was with ferrets, this, I don't know if you heard about this ferret study, they were so excited. Oh my God, great antibody response, which is what they're looking for with the vaccine. And then when they exposed them to the bug, they actually got much, much sicker than ferrets that had not had the vaccine. It backfired. Yeah, well, and th this is what uh, Dr. James Lyons-Weiler, his research has really been looking into pathogen priming, you know, and, and sort of saying like um, getting exposure from any other routes might make you your, your re response to a wild type of virus, which this is what it is, um, really bad, you, you know. Yeah, uh, flu, flu vaccine. I really think, I really wish that people would be studying 
the flu vaccine um, history of people who get really severe disease compared to those who don't even notice they're infected. Because I'm guessing that one of the, one of the um, features of people who are really being taken down is they've been getting a flu vaccine every year for many years. Because there are papers, published research papers that have been peer-reviewed that have said, shown that flu vaccine increases your susceptibility to coronavirus. That's mm-hmm. been shown even before COVID nineteen. Th- yeah, I mean the the number that I recall anyway, I think it's is to the tune of thirty six percent as you know increase. Uh, yeah, and which is significant. And I know flu vaccine also, uh, like for example, syncytial virus. There was a wonderful study from Hong Kong, uh, placebo controlled study, where half people got the flu vaccine and half didn't. They monitored them for the next year for a syncytial virus infection. And they found that the ones who got the vaccine had four times as many syncytial virus infections as the ones who didn't get the flu vaccine. So it's, I think the flu vaccine is basically making your innate immune system weaker while specifically immunizing you against exactly those strains, not even all the flu, but just the strains that are in the vaccine. So I think it's a stupid thing. And I've never gotten the flu vaccine my entire life. I've never yeah. gotten one. Well, I think the other thing that I'll point out, just since we're you know banging on about vaccines, is, is the fact that they're trying to develop an RNA um, vaccine. Oh, I know. And, and, That's and they're so trying to frightening. rush it, like rush it to market. You know, I look at it and I sort of go, and I think for listeners or people watching on YouTube, go back and check out my podcast with um, Vaccine Choice Canada uh, with, with Ted. Um, we get into this a lot and it's it's astounding to me that all of a sudden magically you know we've got something that's almost ready to go to market after five months um you know we're ready to go it's in phase two forget the animal studies who cares let's just get this out there and you know i've heard dr paul off it i've heard people that are like the guys when it comes to vaccine manufacturing and they're like you're gonna have to cut out a whole bunch of stuff and most of that's going to be safety and large-scale population trials like you're gonna have to cut all of that out yeah but the, the the overarching thing that I look at um, with this is that we've never managed to get an RNA vaccine past animal trials. I know. Um, it's amazing, isn't you know, it? But magically after five months with a brand new virus that we don't yeah. even know about, it's ready to go. You know, and I know. I'm really hoping actually that there's a catastrophe that happens with all this rushing because you know, like there are these brave souls who got the vaccine and then got allowed them to expose them to COVID nineteen. You probably heard about that. Mm. They're how they're rushing the, the, the test. Because they, they can't wait around for them to just pick up infection naturally because they won't be able to get enough data, you know. So they're basically asking these very healthy young volunteers to get, a, to get the, their, their, their experimental vaccine and then to be actually exposed to the virus and see what happens. That is so dangerous. And I am secretly hoping, I really hate to say this, but I'm hoping they have a catastrophe, like somebody dies in one of those experiments because that will really you know, keep them from, it will help to slow well, down I, this whole I think process. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, as, and look again, this is out of the mouth of Dr. Paul Offit. You know, he's already said, we will not know. There's a video online. Um, you know, people have asked me in my other videos are like, can you post the link and maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't. But the bottom, you know, Paul Offit had literally said that we will not know whether it's safe or effective until it's out there in the population. Yeah. So we that's so terrifying. Know. And that, for me, it's just like, whoa, you know, you've got, you've got never been able to get a coronavirus vaccine to work, never been able to get an RNA vaccine to work. We've got pathogen priming. We've got all of these other things. And the, the Moderna um, study that they did, I mean, they, everyone was like, oh, my gosh, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread because yeah, it's trial stock, and now, and it's like, well, <laughs> maybe you need to understand that 20% of the people in the trial of the, the, the data that they actually published, which was, I think, 15 out of 45 people, mm. uh, they didn't publish all of it. We don't know what happened to the other 30 people. And yeah, you can no imagine idea. that they probably, the ones that didn't publish are the ones that had something in their story. They didn't I, I mean, I can only assume, I don't know, but, but the, the point is that even from the group that they did publish the data, 20% of those people had a, a grade three reaction, which requires um, medical attention. You know, you and have, these are very, very healthy people. That's what know? I'm saying. This, this is the other thing. I mean, I, so I dread to think what would happen if we're now giving this type of vaccine to the population that needs it most, um, yeah. air quotes, you know, the people with diabetes, with heart disease, maybe I with know. both. Um, what's going to happen? You, you I know? think you've probably heard that Judy Mikovits has come out and said there's going to be hundreds of, you know, millions of, of deaths and maybe more. She's really come out and said, if we vaccinate the entire world with some uh, rushed vaccine, there's a chance of an absolute catastrophe. And I think she's right, you know. Unfortunately, I mean, look, I hope she's wrong. 
but um, yeah. but, but you know, it's um, I, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but I think it's a great conversation, and I think we need to have that conversation because the the the, the fear has has been ramped up so much. I know that all we hear about is fear, fear, fear. Now, you know, now we're hearing about all of the increased cases, but you don't hear about increased recoveries. You don't hear about lower death rates. You just hear about more cases, yeah. more cases, look more. And, and so I think that, you know, we're being primed in a sense that when the vaccine yeah. comes to I'm market. I'm sure this, pharma just sees dollar signs in their eyes at the idea of having this vaccine that's mandatory for the entire world. I mean, that is just an incredible amount of money to be made. Yeah. Well, um, it's unfortunate. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But, um, you know, uh, I, I just just to wrap everything up for us today, um, I think this is just more evidence and more, um, more, yeah, more evidence that I don't think glyphosate should be on the market. We need to get rid of it in its entirety. Um, the biofuel thing is something that I'm definitely going to keep an eye on because um, I know, especially now, as we sort of really usher in uh, the sustainability, Green New Deal type of narrative, um, you, you know, what's going to happen? Because um, it sounds like biofuel, the way that it's being done right now, because of the type of crops we're using, is just not the way to go. <laughs> and it's interesting to ask, if, if you did have organic crops, would it be fine? And I would love to know the answer. Someone should do a study on biofuel derived from organic crops versus biofuel derived from these crops that are sprayed with glyphosate in, in comparison compare them for toxicity, you know? I mean, that really needs to be done because it's possible that the whole biofuel concept is a good one. It makes sense, you know, you're capturing I think it is a good one, yeah. yeah. If you don't have toxic chemicals all over your food, but as long as you're going to use toxic chemicals in agriculture, it's not going to work. It's just going to give you another way to get glyphosate exposure, which is really, really dangerous. Yeah. And I want to say, Mexico, did you hear the news? Mexico has decided to phase out glyphosate completely by 2024. Wow, I, I think I got uh, word of that, but 2024, okay. Wow, that's, that's great. I'm ready to move there because <laughs> you know, I'm looking for a place to live that's not full of glyphosate. Well, so. It's a good, good time to import food from Mexico then, I guess. Mm-hmm, you know. Yes, and I know already that Mexico tends to have much lower levels of glyphosate. Canada did a big study and they measured uh, glyphosate contamination in various foods from different countries, and Mexico came out very good, looking much more like Europe, whereas U.S. and Canada were sky high with their glyphosate contaminations. Yeah. Well, I know that there's a big campaign um, for the removal of glyphosate here in Canada, where I am, um, you know, trying to work with some organizations and regenerative uh, farmers right now. We're sort of greasing the wheels to really try and get the regenerative agricultural movement. um, That's awesome. Like push it forward, um, Mm -hmm. especially when you pair that, you know, a lot of people now are going plant-based, right? So the whole plant-based eating movement is really being pushed forward. And my concern with that is, you know, people are sort of looking at the window dressing side of things and saying, oh, plant-based, it's good for the environment, blah, blah, blah. And you've got these big studies like the Eat Lancet um, study, which was a two-year study, you know, for the the planetary, uh, what was it? The planetary and human health diet, right? So what's the ideal diet? And lo and behold, it's mostly legumes, it's mostly grains, vegetables. And then when you look at the people that are backing all of it, it's like, oh, you're the guys that are doing all the GMOs and you're the guys that are making the chemicals. It's like, huh. So plant-based sounds really good, but we can't have a plant-based diet if it's loaded with GMOs and glyphosate. It's just... Yeah. And the legumes have really the highest level of just about anything. So that's really striking. Very high levels of glyphosate. They're spraying it right before harvest, just like the oats. Oats are also a problem. You know, wheat, oats, legumes, these are, you know, very common foods that when people eat a lot of them, they're going to get sick. Well, and that's what's happening now in Canada with, you know, oat milk is, I mean, it's actually almost, it's Mm. very difficult to find soy milk now, believe it or not. It's very difficult. It's almost almost off the market entirely. And so you've got um, what's really occupying the shelf now is the almond milk, but people are tending to shy away from it because the oat milk has a bit of a sweeter flavor, just naturally. Yes. And it's gross here in Canada. So we just say proudly Canadian oats and oat milk. milk, Oh my God. Loving it. And, um, you know, so, <laughs> I think so I think that's, that's, yeah. And so I think that, um, you know, going with that when it's not organic is not the best way to go. The other big one, which is, um, really coming to the forefront now is pea protein and, um, pea protein. Oh boy. And then oh we're, we're starting, we're going to see that in the vegan movement, um, you know, with, with the, with things like cheeses, for example, and, um, in a lot of the, to add, to add protein to foods, but also to add thickening. Um, to foods. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're, we're going to start to see that a lot more um, with pea protein. 
Yeah, and, and that's um, going to be glyphosate. Exactly, exactly. So a lot of these foods, as I said, you know, a lot of them are, um, they, they sound really good and they're generally quite healthy for people, but we need to look at it through the lens of sustainability, chemical exposure, and, and that. And I think that's a piece that a lot of people are not looking at. So Yeah, people need to wake up. And I think that consumer is waking up. You see a tremendous growth in uh, the availability of, of organic food over yeah. time recently. Yeah. So that's really good. Well, Stephanie, um, thank you so much. Uh, really, thank you so always, much. Always, great. Um, we covered a lot of territory. <laughs> yeah, and it's good to do that. You know, I think long form uh, conversation is is important for these types of things because you know, just getting five minute sound bites here and there, um, it's a lot for people to try and piece it together. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, this was great. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, really appreciate it. And um, this is our final episode for season three. Um, and um, yeah, serendipitously, you were the first guest. You will be the last for season three. So it's fantastic. <laughs> it was not planned, I promise. It was not planned at all. It just happened. <laughs> um, so thanks for tuning in, everyone. And if you're uh, watching or listening to the podcast, um, please do share this, subscribe, leave us a review, and do whatever you can to uh, get more guests like Dr. Stephanie Senefin. And um, yeah, have yourself a great day wherever you are. Thanks again, Stephanie. Thank you.